This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. You know, when those new speakers started coming out, like the Amazon Echo and the Google Home, I thought, oh, people are going to actually get these. This thing is going to be listening to you all the time. Turns out people do, and they love them, and they use them for everything. And so I'm not going to make the same mistake when it comes to this next story, even though I'm I, my initial reaction to this is, are people really going to sign up to give Google all their money in a checking account? Because that's what Google would like to do. Like other big companies, like Apple, right, which has Apple Pay, they are looking into and they're starting to develop a program where they're going to start offering checking accounts, sounds like in early 2020. You're kind of used to giving your information to Apple, though, right? Because of iTunes for so many years, Google will be something new. So we want to know, would you sign up for any banking products from Google? Do you go, yeah, that's convenient, so they already know everything else? Or do you go, no, that is just too much data and too much information? That's our hot question of the day today. And by the way, for the full story, you can check it out at the Wall Street Journal. But let us know what you're thinking. You can vote at CKNW, at Simisera980. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. And also you can call our buzz line and let us know your rationale for this. Would you sign up for a checking account from Google? Yeah, you go, yeah, that's convenient. Or are you afraid of how much data that is? The good news is that both sides in the transit dispute are back at the bargaining table and still there, actually. We're almost, I think we're at about an hour now where they have been back talking. So there was a statement issued just before those talks resumed. And in it, Coast Mountain Bus Company President Mike McDaniel said the company remains optimistic that common ground can be found. It goes on to say, while our current offer is in excess of public sector settlements in British Columbia today, we are open to improving our overall proposal at the bargaining table. This includes building on the proposal we've already put forward to improve working conditions. Now, technically, this is day 13 of the job action. There are 10 more CBUS sailings being cancelled throughout the day today. We want to talk about how this is going so far. And once again, Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown is camped out there. She will let us know, as she did last time, uh, what happens at the talks. Hi, Janet. Hi, Simi, and here we go again. And yes, everybody's hoping for the best today. And that statement from Coast Mountain certainly sounding optimistic. I, I have to say, uh, in my humble opinion, that uh, that they are open to improving the overall proposal at the bargaining table. And uh, we were not able to speak with anybody from Coast Mountain. However, the other side, the Unifor Union, representing the bus drivers, the sea bus operators, and others in this dispute, Simi, uh, their spokesperson Gavin McGarrigal going into the talks, uh, meeting briefly with reporters this morning at the Surrey Hotel where talks are underway. He said he is hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst. And here's more of what he had to say, Simi. Well, the company's been saying now for quite a while that they've been wanting to come back to the bargaining table and that they're prepared to continue bargaining and they're not done. We were skeptical of that, so if we find that we spend a couple of days here in negotiations with uh, an escalation on the horizon and we find out that there's a lot of game playing again, uh, that will send a pretty strong message to our committee and our members. And so, um, you know, I think they'll probably dig in uh, a lot firmer uh, than before. Well, that's interesting, though, Janet, because the statement from Coast Mountain this morning sounds like the company is willing to make some movement. Certainly sounds that way, Simi, and, and, and let's hope both sides are willing to make some movement because you need both to come to the table yep. to reach an agreement. It's just not one party making the move, so hopefully. And you know what sounds optimistic from that clip we just played of Mr. McGarrigal? He's actually talking about 
possibility of being at the table for a couple of days. Yeah. That's the first time we've heard that. So that's good as well. Now, we all know that they're working towards this deadline of Friday morning where the bus drivers had said if there is no agreement or some movement at the bargaining table anyways that they will uh, step up the job action that's currently underway the bus driver saying they will not take any overtime on Friday morning and that could really gum things up on the road for uh, transit riders so everybody's hoping that things can get done today that's for sure simi uh as you mentioned the sea bus sailings that uh, cancellations are still happening mm-hmm. but things could really ramp up on friday morning with this no overtime acceptance by the bus drivers as right. they said and mr mcgarrigal also saying things will continue to ramp up uh next week as well so yeah here we are we're sitting and waiting and hoping for the best that uh there there can be some movement by both sides at the bargaining table here in surrey now janet in the first kind of week or so of this dispute we saw both sides kind of firing back at each other a lot through the media right they were both putting their sides out there and then things kind of started to change uh particularly on the coast mountain bus company side of things do you think it was just do you think the public had any sway in this Oh, I would imagine. I mean, uh, you're right about your observations there, Simi, because we also heard from the union saying that they too noticed a change uh, by the Coast Mountain Bus Company over the weekend, that they were acknowledging that there are some difficult working conditions out there for the bus drivers. And we've been hearing from bus drivers, and you too, Simi, uh, you know, a lot calling into your program saying we are not getting any breaks. And, And if we are getting breaks, they are very very limited and i'm getting all sorts of emails from bus drivers too saying you know help (laughs) say something do something we aren't getting enough break time and i'm getting pictures taken of uh the north vancouver break room and i'm sure everybody's seen that too where we have a a toilet and a microwave within just a few feet of each other and a chair because there's just not enough time we're told by the drivers to grab a coffee grab some food and take a restroom break as well. So that's what they're looking at now. So as you say, it it seems like the company on the weekend was at least acknowledging that there are some difficult working conditions for the drivers. And that is one of the issues in these talks, but I dare say it's one of the key issues, according to the union too, while, you know, wages and benefits are also part of it as well. Okay, so how is this going to go today? How long are they expected to meet for uh, and what's going to happen? Simi, they could go all day. They could go all night. Um, You know, as long as you say that they are at the table, face-to-face, chatting and negotiating, that's a good thing. Um, They will take, you know, a lunch break, a coffee break, a dinner break, that sort of thing. But they could go uh, late into the evening Mm -hmm. and then uh, resume again tomorrow. Um, You know, it's hard to say because I'm not part of it, obviously, but, you know, they will go as long as it takes. And as long as they're making some sort of progress at the table, they will keep chatting until they have to. Um, as you say, I'm camped outside the, the meeting room right yep. now. And um, we'll just wait. We'll just okay. wait and see what they have to say. And uh, as soon as we have something to report, as we did last time, Simi, I'll be uh, right on your program, yes. letting everybody know what's going on. So you got it. That's, that's where we stand right now. All right. Thank you so much for that, Janet.
My pleasure, Simi. That is Global News senior reporter Janet Brown, and she's not even like exaggerating. She is camped out right outside the door of the room where the negotiations are going. She's got a chair there. Uh, last time she was able to tell us is the moment essentially talks broke off. Right now, though, we do want to update you on a story that has been breaking in the last hour or so. We have learned that charges have now been stayed against Port Moody Mayor Rob Vagramov. Let's get more information on this with the help of Grace Key, Global News reporter who is covering this story. Grace, thanks for being here. Yeah, it was a very, very quick uh, court proceeding today. He uh, was not in court. So basically, uh, Crown had said that the, uh, they're requesting the charges be stayed because uh, Vegramov had successfully completed uh, what's called an alternative measures program. So the judge did grant that. Now, in terms of the details of this alternative measure, that was not disclosed. Uh, we did speak with the lawyer that something, he says that's something that they're not disclosing. Alternative measures isn't something we normally, uh, we certainly don't normally report on, but we asked for more details of it. And, you know, the lawyer said that it really could involve a wide spectrum of things. So however parties want to resolve this issue. So, you know, as an example, if there was maybe a minor assault, maybe somebody shoved somebody, maybe something broke, you know, as an alternative measure, for example, somebody could issue an apology and maybe pay for, you know, $50 in damages or whatever happened. So that's just one example of what can come out of an alternative measure. So it wasn't Crown just stopping the case. They stopped it or stayed it because this other thing had happened, whatever it was, this alternative measures. That's right. And it's something that he had successfully completed. So whatever was agreed upon, uh, he did complete it. Okay, interesting. So what happens now then, Grace? Well, that's the interesting thing. So there's this stay of charges. Um, You know, we've reached out to Rob Vagramov. We haven't heard back yet. We're going to be hopefully speaking from other councillor members. Obviously, as you recall, this was incredibly contentious. Um, So what comes next is unclear. Obviously, he has been very vocal about wanting to to stay on, to keep his job. So we'll see what happens next. There could cer- certainly be some, some pushback. I don't know. But again, now the charges have been stayed. Okay, Grace, thank you so much for the update. All right. That is Grace Key, your global news reporter covering the Rob Vagramov story today. This was something that Rob Vagramov himself had um, kind of alluded to back in September when he very suddenly and abruptly decided to come off of his leave and return to work. Right now, let's turn our attention to a local story again that we are watching today very closely, and that has to do with Port Moody Mayor Rob Vagramov. Charges have been stayed against Vagramov. We got that news this morning. The BC Prosecution Service confirming that that has happened uh, given Vagramov's successful completion of an alternative measure program. He had been facing a charge of sexual assault that resulted in him taking a leave from his job as mayor, coming back, but then once again under pressure, taking a leave again. So what happens now? So we wanted to talk more about this. Joining us now is Diana Dilworth, Port Moody City Councillor, the councillor who brought that motion uh, against Bob Vagramov to council last month that was so hotly debated. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Simi. How are you? Good, thank you. So what is your reaction to hearing the news that the charge has now been stayed? I'm a little bit disappointed. Our community had made it really clear that any 
outcome other than complete exoneration would be unacceptable in terms of his tenure as mayor. And he's clearly not been exonerated, he's not been acquitted, and he's not been cleared of the charge of sexual assault that was made against him. And why do you say that? Well, my understanding is that he has completed an alternative measures program. And my understanding of alternative measures is that he likely has had to admit guilt of something and he's had to make amends to the victim. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, my understanding is also that the details of the alternative measures program are sealed. And I believe he's going to use this, sort of hide behind it, and he won't publicly admit that he's taken responsibility for his actions in this in this nature. So what's going to happen now? Do you anticipate him returning from leave? Has there been any indication of that to council? Uh, I, I have not had any communication with Mr. Vagramov, but I, I do believe he will likely return to his office at Port Moody City Hall in the next day or so. And what has the last month or so been like, Diana? I know the previous council meeting where this was debated was a pretty, uh, you know, contentious one. How has it been like since then? Do you know what? When Mr. Vagramov's not in City Hall, we actually get business done, and it's very respectful, and it's very civil. And it's when he appeared back at City Hall, um, it became very uncivil very quickly. Okay, so are you a little apprehensive then about what the next steps are here? I, I, I am. I, I'm very apprehensive because uh, our community's been in, in turmoil. And I don't know if you're aware, but we have a group of citizens that have been collecting names on a petition to submit to the, the provincial government um, to demand some legislation be put in place. So no community has to go through what we've been going through. Do you anticipate any discussion of this then at the next council meeting? Any motions that you will bring forward as a result of this? <laughs> You know what? I'm going to go listen to my my constituents. I'm going to listen to what our community is going to say. I have a feeling that they're very much going to continue to be disappointed that he believes he can serve as mayor when he is likely admitted to a crime or irresponsible uh, behavior. All right, Councillor Dilworth, thank you for your time. Okay, you're welcome. Have a good day. You too. That's Diana Dilworth, Port Moody City Councillor. And let's just be clear here, the charge against Rob Vagramov has been stayed by the Crown. Uh, That is because of Rob Vagramov's successful completion of an alternative measure program. All right, let's talk about when you cross the border into the United States. I think you'll find this story very interesting. A federal court in Boston has ruled that warrantless U.S. government searches of smartphones and laptops of international travelers at airports and other U.S. ports of entry violate the Fourth Amendment. That ruling came in a lawsuit that was filed by the American Civil Liberties Union and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And it was done so on behalf of 11 travelers whose smartphones and laptops were searched without any kind of individual suspicion at U.S. ports of entry. So the ACLU had described those searches as, quote, fishing expeditions. And they say border officers must now demonstrate some kind of suspicion of contraband before they can actually search a traveler's device. Now, the government, of course, had pretty much very vigorously defended the searches as a critical tool to protect the United States. But what does this mean for you? So many of us go back and forth right across the border all the time. Does this mean that you can now refuse to show your phone or laptop if you're crossing the border? Well, joining us now is Len Saunders, an immigration lawyer based in Blaine, Washington, right across the border from us. Len, thanks so much for being here. No problem. Thanks for having me on your show today. Does this change things for Canadian travelers? Well, I think it's going to have basically a chilling effect on the border officers, the U.S. officers, 
at the border, it's going to probably make them think second before just asking anybody to search their phone. Up until now, has that been the case, though? So they could say, can I take a look at your phone? And we would have had to have handed it over. Absolutely. They had carte blanche. They could ask anybody at any time to basically start, you know, scrolling through their phone, looking at whatever they want. Oh, do you think that was something that they were actively using? Like oh, t- absolutely. A lot of the cases, a lot of the waiver cases that people have retained me for, especially recently, were because they went through someone's phone and either saw text messages or photos, and they said, here's the incriminating evidence. How do you answer that? So definitely they were using it as a tool for interrogation at the U.S. ports of entry. Right. So you may say, oh, no, I never used cannabis or whatever, but if they found a picture of you, boom, done. Absolutely. And frequently, when I've been inside the border, I'll, I'll see officers asking Canadians politely, can I see your phone? And then they say, what's your password? And people readily hand them over. And I think, you don't have to do that. You could always say no. But then they become afraid that if they say no, they're put on some other list, right? That Ab- will absolutely, absolutely. Expose them to heightened interrogation. So does that mean that you're a troublemaker and you get put on some other secret list? Exactly. But I'm serious, though. Is there another list? Like, is there some other problem that if you say no, what happens? Well, so usually what I tell clients is if you don't cooperate, they're not going to let you in. So you're going to get denied entry. And then what they do is they put a lookout on you so that the next time you come to the border, whether it's the next day, a week later, a month later, or even years later, you'll be sent into secondary. And the last remark will be, Subject refused to allow search of his or her phone, and they're probably going to ask you again. What this changes, this court ruling, it gives the officers less discretion because now there has to be reasonable suspicion. So at least it's somewhat of a uh, a chilling effect on them just asking anybody for like any randomly. reason. Right. Exactly. So up until now, they could have just told, asked every single person, "Can I see your phone?" Yes. Now they don't do that. Because, you know, the lines would stretch up to the North Pole with Canadians seeking entry. But if they had any suspicion on anything, they could basically just say, I want to look at your phone. Now they probably have to articulate it and have some reasonable basis to actually start going on that fishing expedition. Okay, here's my question then, Len. What do we consider to be a reasonable suspicion? Like, what do they have to say to you? Well, it's interesting because I think you have to have criminal activity. So it can't be, okay, you know, have you smoked marijuana in the past? Um, So they have to have some criminal basis. And it's interesting. I'm actually surprised that this court ruled on this because my understanding has always been when you're seeking entry to the United States, you really have no rights because you're not protected under the Constitution, because you haven't actually been admitted. Even though you're on U.S. soil, you haven't been admitted. So I'm actually surprised that that the court was so generous in this ruling on saying that people actually have rights at U.S. ports of entry. So it's definitely encouraging. It is, but I wonder as well, how long does it take for something like that to filter down to the border guards? Well, it's interesting. I actually made some inquiries today, and as of today, there's been no changes at the local ports. Usually it takes about a week or two for memos to be generated and sent out. I think what's going to happen, though, this will be a case that will go to the Supreme Court. The U.S. government is definitely going to appeal it. So it'll be interesting whether it takes a year or two years to reach the Supreme Court, what's going to happen in the meantime. 
This ruling is on the East Coast. These local ports here in Blaine and Point Roberts, they're all under what's called the Ninth Circuit, which is actually a court down in San Francisco. So it'll be interesting to see if the local ports are are recognizing this this ruling from Boston. Maybe, maybe not. Um, Who knows? So you're saying then that we should still err on the side of caution here because they may not yet recognize this ruling. Well, exactly. Like, I don't think there's going to be any changes overnight on asking individuals uh, to search phones, but I do think I'm going to see it on a less frequent basis because until this ruling, I always said they can ask whatever they want, whenever they want. There's really no, you know, nothing holding back officers from interrogating Canadians going through their laptops, cell phones for any reason. So do we underestimate that sometimes, do you think, Len, or we don't, we think, oh, they're not going to look at this kind of stuff when really, if they want to, they can and they will. Well, exactly. And so I tell clients, if there's anything you don't want the officers to see on your phone or to read, leave your cell phone at home. You can always get a U.S. cell phone just for traveling back and forth. And I tell a lot of clients, be careful on bringing your phone over. If there's anything on there which you don't want them to read, then leave your cell phone in Canada. Oh, do you not, do you realize how like absolutely unreal that sounds to people saying, "What? Leave my phone at home?" Well, exactly because so many people need it, you know, yeah. for for business, for family. But you know, people could have two cell phones: one to use up in Canada, and one that they can just use coming over the border if they come down here frequently. So do you think that is the safest way to go then, that if you must, just absolutely leave your phone at home? If, there are, if there's information on your phone that you don't want the American officers to read, yes. That's good advice. Len, thank you so much. Thanks, Simi. Have a good day. You too. That's Len Saunders, an immigration lawyer based in Blaine, Washington. So he knows all too well the problems that some Canadian travelers face. We're also going to take a look at what is happening down in the United States today. And you know what? I shouldn't even say in the United States because audiences all over the world are watching the first televised public hearing into U.S. President Donald Trump's pressure on Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden and his family. These are the beginning of the impeachment process, the impeachment hearings, and there is definitely an audience for this. What we've heard so far, William Taylor, the top American diplomat in Ukraine, and George Kent, a senior State Department official in charge of Ukraine policy, both appeared for their joint testimony this morning. And William Taylor revealed that a member of his staff overheard President Trump asking the European Union ambassador, Gordon Sondland, whether Ukraine would move forward with an investigation into Joe and Hunter Biden. The member of my staff could hear President Trump on the phone asking Ambassador Sondland about the investigations. Ambassador Sondland told President Trump the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. Now, Taylor also said that he thought it was, quote, crazy and illogical for the Trump administration to make military aid contingent on Ukraine announcing those investigations into Joe Biden. William Taylor made the statements in response to questioning from Daniel Goldman, who's the investigations chief for uh, Representative Adam Schiff. That's the Democratic chair of the House Intelligence Committee. William Taylor says, while there was no quid pro quo, there was an explicit understanding, he says. He began that, again, by repeating, this is not a quid pro quo, but... If, the pres- if President Zelensky did not clear things up in public, we would be at a stalemate. And what I understood uh, uh, for in, in that meeting, 
the meaning of stalemate was the security assistance would not come. Okay, so once again, that is William Taylor. He's the top American diplomat in Ukraine, and he has been testifying this morning at the impeachment proceedings in Washington, D.C. Two more witnesses are expected to be questioned this week. Uh, David Holmes, who's a State Department official, he's been invited to appear on Friday. Mark Sandy is the Associate Director for National Security Programs at the White House Office of Management and Budget, and he was invited for Saturday. Lots more watching ahead on this. I mean, if you're of a certain age, then this is not the first time you have seen things like this. I mean, I vividly remember the Bill Clinton impeachment proceedings. Before that, I spent a summer at home watching. I was just a teenager and I was into that kind of stuff, the Iran-Contra hearings. Uh, and of course, young people older than me will remember the um, Richard Nixon impeachment hearings as well. Uh, so right now, a lot of people glued to their TV following along on this. All right, now let's talk about your your dog. I know everybody loves talking about their dogs. Is your dog sociable? Does it like getting along with other dogs? Does it have fun? Or is it uh, really more of a loner? Well, we're going to talk about this personality trait and what it means for the health of your dog now with the help, of course, our contributor, Claire Allen, because she loves talking about dogs. I right, love, Claire? I do. I love dogs. All dogs. I know. I send any kind of thing I see about dogs. I always send it to you. Perfect. Keep sending them. (laughs) (laughs) Like this story, which came across your desk about some research at UBC. What is this about? Yeah. So, Simi, before I worked at NW and we chatted about different topics every day, I was a uh, university student at one point who still loved dogs. So now you're a producer that loves dogs. Yes. Just the (laughs) title has changed. (laughs) Um, And uh, at the time, I ended up adopting a dog. But before that, I I didn't know if I was ready for the commitment. So I'd foster a bunch of dogs, dogs that would come in from different parts around the the United States, I would foster them. And at while I was volunteering, I was told that there were certain dogs who were vulnerable, such as, you know, puppies that have low immune systems um, or um, pregnant, pregnant dogs. And so those dogs would be moved to f- people who would foster like myself. So I thought that's what a vulnerable dog is, you know, a compromised immune system or, vul- right. or a pregnant puppy, et cetera. So those dogs would come to me and they would live at a fo- at my house in, as a, in a foster situation and then be adopted out. However, new research from the University of British Columbia has found that there may be another factor that plays into whether a dog will become sick after entering a shelter. And that factor is sociability. Oh. Yeah. So I was quite intrigued. So I spoke to Dr. Alexandra Popova, an assistant professor at UBC's Faculty of Land and Food Systems, about her study and what it revealed about dogs. We took a look at 84 dogs coming into a local city shelter. And just on intake, we looked at their behavior. And uh, we conducted a, a behavioral assessment that consisted of looking at the dog's activity levels, their sociability, and how curious they were about a novel object that was placed in an outdoor pen. We also looked how they behaved towards a human inside the kennel. And then given uh, we recorded those behaviors, and then we tracked their illness as they stayed in the shelter with continuous clinical exams to see if they were getting sick and how, kind of how quickly they were getting sick in the shelter. Um, and so what we found was really striking that even though time in the shelter was the biggest predictor of illness, so the longer you stayed in the shelter, the more sick or you were. But excitingly, we also found that behavior also mattered, that dogs that were exhibiting more sociable behaviors towards humans in that sociability test as well as the um, in-kennel assessment where they were jumping in, uh, on the kennel 
um, in the sociability assessment, they were jumping on the person, leaning on the person. Those dogs were also more likely to become sick. And so this was quite exciting because this is something that we did not know before, that uh, we could, in fact, predict who was going to become sick based on this um, initial assessment of of behavior. Okay, so now I'm a little bit worried because I have a dog that is very sociable with humans. Mm-hmm. Well, what that's that what, mean? we'll get to that later about how she'll explain sort of the link there. Now, I was a little confused when I heard this because I didn't really understand the link between a dog's sociability and in its increased possibility to contract an illness. Um, so when I asked Dr. Protopopova to explain the link, she said that there are two sort of hypotheses that she has. The first is called the risk of parasitism hypothesis. And that's the idea that if you are more social, you are therefore you would encounter more pathogens, which could lead to an increased risk of illness, right? So like if you're out there doing things, you're probably going to come into contact with pathogens. Therefore, you could get sick. That even applies to us humans, right? So however, this didn't really... Dr. Protopova said that this... She didn't think that that actually was what was happening because she said that most of these dogs were actually grouped housed in these shelters and the conditions weren't exactly sanitary. So all the dogs were still... um, they were still uh, exposed to the same level of pathogens. So she thought that that wasn't what we were seeing. And so she said she had another idea of what it could be. So there is another hypothesis to explain this, is that, and, and this is something that I'm working on right now, to figure out if dogs may have given up in some way their immune function to get sociability. Oh, that yeah. doesn't sound good, though, for people with sociable dogs. Right. So I asked her, like, what exactly does she mean? How does this apply to dogs? And recently, there has been this suggested in dogs that there may be the differences in coping style uh, and the ability to cope with stressors may be related to this kind of idea that um, there are some animals putting more resources into reproduction and some more resources into immune system function. And in the dog's case, it's a very, um, it's, it's a bit more, it's, it's quite different from other species where humans are involved. If you look at the natural habitat of a dog, they really are in villages. They're not in pet homes. The dog that we know and love in our pet home is kind of a, it's not the standard way of living. So if you look at the overall population of dogs in the world, about 80% or so are living outside of the home. And for those dogs um, in in those villages, those village dogs, uh, they do rely on humans for survival. Um, And so could it be the case that there are these adaptive strategies where dogs are trading off immune system function to get that sociability. And so, of course, this is a, a wild hypothesis and one that I would like to pursue further. Interesting. So it's like survivability versus like protecting themselves from this. Yeah, exactly. So her she hypothesized uh, that a dog's willingness to trust humans and the correlation with a weaker immune system in those particular dogs could be an evolutionary trait. So that, yes, if you are relying on humans for medical care or, you know, um, being able to access food, they may not be the humans may not be feeding the dogs directly. That that has led to a lower, a weaker immune system. But they still have to do it because that means their survival. Yeah, exactly. So it's quite interesting. It is. And um, Dr. Protopopova said that her research is actually relevant to all dogs, not just feral dogs or shelter dogs. Shelter dogs are not fundamentally different from pet dogs. Shelter dogs are pet dogs who have found themselves in the shelter for various circumstances, very much always uh, through no fault of their own. And so with that in mind, these shelter dogs are your dog. It, it, they're the same, the same dogs that we're looking at. And so what that means is that if you have a, a highly social dog towards 
a dog who is very highly social towards people, and that dog finds themselves in a stressful environment, that dog now is uh, at a higher risk for upper respiratory infection or kennel cough compared to a dog who is less social towards people. Oh, so how do you protect your dog from this then? Right. So the regular thing that you can do is just to make sure your dog's vaccinations are up to date, right? Like that's a very easy thing that every responsible dog owner can do is just to make sure that they get every single vaccine that your vet recommends for your dog. Um, And I have dealt with animals that do have kennel cough and it's a very tough disease for especially little puppies to get over. So you just want to make sure that if your dog's super social, like your dog with humans, my dog. My dog thinks it is human though. That's the difference. My dog loves people too. You just have to make sure that uh, you get all your, the vaccinations. And also uh, Dr. Pota Popova said that she's hoping animal welfare groups will actually use her research to create an assessment tool to identify social dogs when they come into a shelter. And therefore they'll know that that dog might be at a higher risk of contracting an illness. So immunize those dogs first. Well, that and also maybe find another place for that dog to go. Because, you know, shelters as much as people do a lot of good work there, but the fact is... It's a shelter. It's a shelter and there are a lot of diseases going around. So So maybe your house. Yes, maybe my house. <laughs> if only my strata would let me have more than more one dog. Dogs. Exactly. Yes, that's what she Come would on like down, to dogs. <laughs> Thanks for that, Claire. Thanks, Amy. That is Claire Allen, our contributor to the show, talking about the health of your dogs. They will go down to the individual level. They will take a look at the behavior that presents itself, and they will make that decision. And that's called discretion. It's called, is this criminal? Is this dangerous? Is this disrespectful? And council set that direction to make that assessment, and I'm comfortable that our staff will do that. That is Maple Ridge Mayor Mike Morden. Now, city council in Maple Ridge voted six to one last night in favor of a controversial motion to ban what they refer to as aggressive panhandling. It is the Safer Streets Bylaw, and that would make it an offense for people to sit or lie on the street in a manner which obstructs convenient pedestrian walkways or to ask for money after someone has said no. Obviously, there's lots of questions and discussion about this. So we wanted to actually chat with the one person that voted against this. As I mentioned, the city council vote last night was six to one. So one councillor was opposed, and that was Kirsten Duncan. And so Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak with her about why she chose to vote against it. And here's their chat. You were the only one who opposed this new bylaw. Why did you oppose it? So I have pretty serious concerns that this will unintentionally stigmatize our homeless community and particularly people that are struggling with mental health, addictions, and homelessness. I understand the intent of the bylaw, but I think that we should be trying to solve poverty and help those in need versus regulating poverty. Well, I am very curious about the intent of this bylaw. I mean, in theory, I know you don't agree with the bylaw, but in theory, how will this bylaw actually deter people from panhandling? I don't think it will. The intent of this bylaw is to address aggressive panhandlers. Uh, first off, this is going to be by complaint basis. So I think it's going to be incredibly difficult for bylaw officers to track people down. People are going to continue to panhandle because this is their way of life. They have to get by somehow. And this is how they're able to survive. So people are going to continue to panhandle. I don't think this is going to deter people. 
I think what this is going to do is stigmatize people that are homeless and struggling with mental health and addictions issues. It's not going to address the problem they're hoping to. And most of all, it's not going to solve poverty. It's going to regulate it. And it's not going to help people in need. My biggest concern is that these people need to be connected to services. I would much rather see us talk to the community organizations in our community that are serving individuals in need and ask them uh, what they feel would help address the issue and what their solutions are and ask if there's any grants the city can apply for on their behalf or assist them with that will help deal with this issue. I think that would be a much more positive, productive way to address this issue versus regulating it and finding people because they are impoverished and they are begging on the streets for help. So what exactly does the bylaw state? So the bylaw states that people that are found breaking this bylaw are uh, potentially liable to fines as well as uh, jail time, which I think is absolutely ludicrous. And while I have been reassured by my council colleagues that this is not going to happen, it doesn't change the fact that it's in the bylaw. And if it's in the bylaw, then this can in fact happen. I've been told that there's community safety officers and that they're going to help connect people to services. But again, if that's not written into the bylaw, there's no guarantee that's going to happen. People can absolutely be fined and potentially go to prison for breaking this. I wonder, and perhaps you can provide some insight on how fines will be collected and enforced. When I hear of these bylaws uh, that penalize people who are panhandling, penalize people who are looking for money, I always wonder how city councils who approve such bylaws expect these individuals to pay those fines. Do we have any understanding on how these people are going to pay the fines? That is an excellent question. I asked that during the council meeting on Tuesday, and unfortunately, I don't have an answer for you because it doesn't make any sense to me. How can you possibly ask people that are begging for their lives to pay a fine when they're just getting by with a small amount of pocket change? How can you possibly ask them to pay a fine? That doesn't make any sense. They're not going to be able to afford it. Again, it's not going to change anything. It's not going to help those in need. It's just going to criminalize poverty. I was really surprised when I read a quote from the mayor who said, the predominance here is not a poverty problem. The majority of it is plain out-and-out drugs. But for me, that seems to show a lack of understanding of the connection between the two. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. There are people in our community that are struggling with drug addiction. Absolutely. But the majority of them are absolutely in poverty. Most of the people in our community uh, that are in poverty are obviously homeless. Many of them do struggle with mental health and addictions issues. There's absolutely a connection to that. It's not purely a drug addiction issue. Um, From what the mayor said, it makes it sound like people are just asking for drug money. And that's not the case. That's not at all the case of what's happening. I've sat down and spoken to many of these individuals. I regularly buy granola bars for a young individual. I'm not going to say where he is because I don't want to let people know his identity or where to locate him. But I regularly uh, meet with these individuals. I speak with them. I know them by name. And I know for a fact that's not what's happening because they've told me their stories. So what happens from here? The vote was 6-1 in favor of the bylaw, and you were the sole member in opposition of it. Odds are not in your favor that this thing is going to get overturned. 
I think going forward uh, with another council, there's the chance that this could be overturned. But with this particular council, um, this is something uh, they have fought for quite hard. And this is something they're very passionate about. And I don't see this changing anytime soon, particularly because the vote was six to one. And all of my colleagues disagreed with my points. So I do not see this changing in the near future. This is something they are very passionate about. Uh, this is something that fits into what they call their community safety plan, uh, many, many items of which I also disagree with, including banning cycling on sidewalks because I feel it's going to impact general cyclists and it's not going to deal with people that are riding without due care. If they don't currently listen to the bylaw, why would they listen to a new bylaw? So... I think my council is very passionate about this, and unless there's a change of council or a tremendous amount of advocacy, and even then, I don't see them changing their minds. In closing, what message do you have to residents of Maple Ridge who are joining us in this conversation? What I would say is that we don't need to be afraid of people in poverty. I understand that there are absolutely some people in the community that are aggressive, but I think it is a very small minority. And I think there's a lot of fear about people that are panhandling, and it comes from a place of misinformation and fear-mongering. And I think there's a lack of understanding and there's a lot of stigmatization of people that are homeless and dealing with mental health and addictions issues. It's not that the people who are in fear are trying to stigmatize them. It's that there's been a lot of fear mongering in the past election and over the last few years uh, that has brought on this hysteria and made people very afraid of people that are in poverty and people that are begging on the streets, fear that they're going to hurt them or their families. Um, like I said, there's absolutely some people in the community that may panhandle and be aggressive. I myself have not experienced that. I've heard concerns in the community that that has happened. But I do believe that a lot of this comes particularly on what you hear on Facebook. I've heard so many stories about people that are being attacked or hearing about someone being attacked or something terrible happening. Uh, I had someone contact me once and say someone walked up and slit a woman's throat and threatened their child. It was ridiculous. And this is something that I did forward, of course, to the RCMP. And they confirmed that this was a rumor on Facebook. It had never happened. And this is just one example of an extreme story that I've seen on social media that the community has picked up and unfortunately thought was legitimate. That's Kirsten Duncan. Uh, she is a Maple Ridge City Councilor. She was talking there with our Nikki Reitmeyer about her vote last night. So that Facebook discussion that she just had there is so interesting to me because has it not become clear in the last few years that Maple Ridge has a Facebook problem? They had this problem with the previous mayor. That was Nicole Reed, remember? She got all those threats on Facebook and just the bullying and everything going on on Facebook that the RCMP were called uh, to provide some security and protection for her because of that. Uh, they And that story is wild, what she just said there. Like, that's the kind of stuff that is spreading on these Maple Ridge kind of Facebook pages. That kind of misinformation is spreading out there. Uh, that's just, that's craziness. Now, if you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW. Uh, now, there is obviously more to this story. Kirsten Duncan was the one councillor who voted against that motion last night. Six voted in favour, including the Mayor Mike Morden. And we should mention the Mayor will be Linda Steele's guest today, coming up on the Linda Steele Show after the 4 o'clock news. 
Good news and bad news for those out there who rely on transit to get around in Metro Vancouver. The good news is that the two sides in the dispute between Coast Mountain Bus Company and Unifor, well, they are back at the bargaining table. That's a positive sign after about, oh, 12 days or so of disruption because of CBUS cancellations and that kind of thing. But the bad news is that that's one side over there. Look over here. And there's a potential problem brewing along the SkyTrain line. That is QP Local 7000's employees. And they said after more than 40 sessions at the bargaining table, talks between SkyTrain and QP Local 7000 have now reached an impasse. Let's find out more about this now with the help of Tony Rabella, who's the QP 7000 president. Tony, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Simi. So where are we at? What has happened? Oh, well, the talks broke down uh, yesterday late afternoon, and um, we are at an impasse. So now moving forward, we're taking the information to our members and uh, seeking direction from them. Does that mean taking a strike vote? Um, at this point, I really can't say if that's what is going to happen. We're, we want to talk to our members, let them know all the information that was put in front of us. Um, that being said, we still are apart on many issues, but uh, it's going to come down to to the to the members' decision, and uh, we'll we'll go from there. We have meetings set tomorrow and Monday. Okay, well, that's still promising then, then Tony, isn't it? That you've got still a couple of meetings moving forward. Yeah, our our focus is still to get a deal, right? Uh, we want to reach a deal. We want to get a fair deal for our members, and that's what we're focusing on, and that's what we want to communicate to our members throughout these meetings. And um, we're gonna we're gonna go down in the direction from our members. We'll we'll find out uh, through these next couple of meetings over the next few days. How would you characterize the talks up until this point? Um, talks overall have been okay, but. Uh, Lately, like we've said in our press release, it, it, we're, we're just far apart on a few things. And some of the issues that are still key issues to our members haven't been addressed, and we need them addressed. Uh, we, we, need, we, need our, we need the company to come back and, and take those issues seriously for us to get to a fair deal. Okay, and what are those one or two issues? Well, we have a few issues. Um, you know, our sick plan, our in, uh, the, the biggest issue, uh, one of our biggest issues in, uh, in our operations department is our inadequate of staffing levels. Uh, we have our forced overtime language provision uh, that we don't agree with, that we, we have to have some issues or have more conversations on. Um, and, you know, we're, we're looking for a fair wage package as well. Now, Tony, let me ask you, like for the last, you know, three, four years, there has been a big focus on expansion, right, of the transit system, which overall yep. everybody went, oh, that's really good. This is long overdue. But has that come at a strain to employees? Well, the expansion, well, we always welcome expansion. We want to see, we want to see the transit network get better and better every year. So we always welcome expansion. But at the same time, we want to make sure that our members are are doing that work and, and you know, being part of that expansion, right? And I'm not saying that we're not there, but we, we really do. It hasn't really strained the talks, but at the same time, we, you know, we have those issues of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, of... Uh, Oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. That's Sydney. okay. Uh, how would how it's been would a little you... bit of a busy day? But yeah, it, it, 
expansion is, is one of those things that we, we do want to keep going on with and, uh, and we applaud it. And right now we just want to focus at our deal today or at our bargaining table for now. And uh, we'll deal with expansion as it comes. Is there a wide gap, would you say, between the two sides or do you see it as being bridgeable? Um, I think it could be bridgeable, but that's up to the company. Right, uh, we we need to get back to the table and 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 have some serious talks on some of the things that we have that we're gapped on right now. Okay, so you said there are though two more days of talks scheduled. We have two more days. Uh, no, we have meetings with our members. Meetings with your so we members. We have information scheduled. information uh, meetings with our members, but we have no more talks at this time with the company. No. Okay. Do you feel yeah. like is there a willingness to get back to the table if your if your members tell you that is that what the, then you'll go back to the table? Uh, I, I I don't know at this time. We'll uh, we'll have to to wait and see. Okay. And how many members are we talking about here, Tony? Uh, we represent about nine hundred SkyTrain members. Okay. And those are people who do what? Uh, we have SkyTrain attendants, control operators. We have maintenance staff. We have administration staff and technical staff that we represent. You know, and we heard in the Coast Mountain bus dispute, Tony, a lot of the discussion has been about the the amount of overtime that it takes to keep that system running. Is that a similar situation for SkyTrain or no? It is. Yes, it is. So is overtime absolutely necessary? Uh, For our operations department, almost on a daily basis, it is, yes. Hmm. Now, is that something that has been addressed or attempted to be addressed in talks? We are trying to address it in talks now. Hmm. Okay, so uh, when will these meetings happen with uh, the QP members? So we're meeting with the members uh, tomorrow, Thursday, and on Monday. All right, we'll wait to find out what happens. Tony, thanks for your time. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. That's Tony Rabello, who's the QP 7000 president, representing, as he said there, about 900 people who work for different aspects of SkyTrain, which is administration, SkyTrain attendance, uh, all sorts of uh, different jobs there, but about 900 in total. You may not know this, but as of January 1st, the city of Vancouver is instituting a ban on foam takeout containers. That's really not that far away. Now, businesses have been making the transformation to the point where I'm pretty surprised if I am handed a foam takeout container anywhere. Most of them, it seems like, have moved to more sustainable materials. But essentially, for some people, this is going to be a learning curve. So what is the city doing about that? Well, they've actually launched a new program about that. Joining us now is Monica Kosmak, who's a senior project manager at the city of Vancouver. Uh, we will be learning more about their single-use items Items reduction strategy, what they've done is they've launched uh, some toolkits to help businesses actually find some convenient, affordable, and recyclable or even compostable alternatives to foam. And you're seeing a lot more of that out there. Uh, So we are hoping to talk more about that. But essentially, what it means is that after January 1st, you should no longer be served foods or drinks or anything like that in a polystyrene foam cup or any kind of a foam takeout container. And, you know, you wonder how some businesses will adjust to that. Well, we're going to find out about that. So the city is uh, embarking on a program to help them deal with it. So Monica Kosmak joins us now to talk more about that. Monica, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So tell me about this toolkit. 
So the toolkits are to support businesses in going foam free starting January 1st when the ban comes into effect on foam cups and foam containers. It is a it includes guidelines to help businesses find recyclable and compostable alternatives as well as reusable alternatives. And it offers details on compostable and degradable plastics, which aren't accepted in the city's green bin program or Recycle BC's residential recycling program. And it gives questions for businesses to support them in their conversations with suppliers so that they can choose these alternatives. And it also provides posters and till toppers, which businesses can use to notify their customers about the citywide ban. Okay. And so I think a lot of businesses have already started this transition, don't you think? Yes, there are quite a few that have already made the transition, but we are aware that there are some that uh, need the support. And so that's what these toolkits are for. Okay. And so what is acceptable then? Once January 1st happens, what will a restaurant or business be allowed to use? Well, what we're trying to do is encourage businesses to use reusable alternatives, or if they have to use disposables, that they choose alternatives that their customers could take home and recycle through their residential recycling program operated by Recycle BC or the city's green bin program. Right. Okay. And if there are other takeout containers, I find a lot of people or a lot of restaurants are also moving to, you know, like some form of sustainable material on that. Right. So plastic uh, can be recycled through the Recycle BC program and plastic coated paper can also be recycled. In terms of what's accepted in green bin, um, there are alternatives of pressed leaves or as well uh, molded fiber pulp like paper containers. Right. And so, so those are the types of examples that we've provided in the toolkit. Okay, so now if they do that, because I get these at home all the time, Monica, so if it's like a molded paper fiber kind of takeout thing, now can I put that in the green bin? You can. Yeah. If it's made, if it's not lined with plastic, you can put it in the green bin. Ah, okay. So when can I not put something in the green bin? Uh, Well, if it is lined with plastic or if it includes plastic, it should go into your blue bin. Or if it's made of glass, it can go into the gray bin. Or if you're in an apartment building, the, the glass cart. Right. You mentioned as well, and I've seen this in some restaurants too, is that they're giving you kind of like plastic containers now, right? That I usually wash and I save them and I use them over and over and over again for my lunch. But can those go in the blue bin? Yes, they can. If they're not biodegradable or um, if they're not biodegradable, they can go into your blue bin. Okay. So this is an interesting program then. Is this something that other jurisdictions are doing as well? Well, as far as we know, we're the first city in Canada to be banning foam cups and foam takeout containers. City of Richmond also will be starting a ban uh, effective January 1st of 2020. And we're working really hard to make sure that we get the information out to businesses so that they can find the recyclable alternatives in time for the ban. Okay, so then where can they get more information about this toolkit and everything? The toolkit is available online on our website at vancouver.ca slash foam, where they can download the toolkit or order print copies by request. And it's available in six languages, English, traditional Chinese, simplified Chinese, Vietnamese, Punjabi, and Filipino Tagalog. You guys are being really thorough on this one, too. So what about enforcement? How is that going to work after January? Will there be a monitoring of this? Well, what we're trying to do is take a real education-based supportive approach to enforcement in the beginning so that we make sure that businesses have the information that they need to make the switch. And if we find that there are some businesses who have not yet changed, we'll continue to work with them and uh, try to get as much voluntary compliance as we can. Okay. And how long will that period last, do you think? 
we don't have a set timeline on that period, time period. It's we're really trying to work with the businesses, and I think their customers will want to see this as well. We've seen through our opinion research that 77% of Vancouverites support this ban, and um, 84% are interested in having businesses use more reusable alternatives. So I think that as a community, we'll be able to get there. Okay, and so what kind of foam are we talking about? Like, how would a consumer recognize this if they are handed this at a restaurant in Vancouver? It would be your classic, typically white foam cup or white foam takeout container. It's labeled polystyrene. It may have the number six on the bottom, and it's usually that fluffier, foamier plastic. Ah, okay. That's pretty identifiable then. So you're going to wait and see what happens here, but you think it might take a while for perhaps some businesses to adjust to this? Well, I think, like you said, there are many businesses who have already made the change, so I don't think it's going to take that long. We do have outreach teams who will be going out to businesses and making sure that they are aware. And if we hear uh, through um, our 301 line or through residents that um, they're seeing businesses who haven't made the change, then we'll go out and follow up with them as well. All right, Monica, thank you. And all that starts on January 1st. It, well, the toolkits are available online today, and the outreach uh, and the outreach teams are going out starting in November to make sure businesses are prepared before the ban. But yes, the ban comes into effect January first, twenty twenty. All right, Monica, thank you. Thanks so much. That is Monica Kosmak, the senior project manager at the city of Vancouver and the lead on their single use items reduction strategy. And so as part of that strategy, Vancouver, and as you heard Monica say, Richmond also doing this, is trying to go foam free. And what they've done is they've passed this foam bylaw earlier this year, which means it's starting on January 1st. There's a citywide ban on this. So if you go to a restaurant or someplace after January 1st, you should not be handed any kind of a takeout cup or container that is made of foam, like that polystyrene white foam. Well, let's sum up how the day in Washington, D.C. went, because it was the first day of testimony in the House's impeachment hearing. It's ended now, but there are more hearings to come. Today, we heard from two State Department officials, a man named William Taylor and George Kent. They testified for more than five hours today. Let's find out what happened and what we can expect in the days ahead. Joining us now is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Radio producer in Washington, D.C. Hi, Reggie. Long time no talk to Good afternoon. All right, let's talk about what happened today. Who did we hear from and why? Well, we heard from uh, two people who are active members in the State Department. George Kent, who is uh, the uh, Deputy Acti- uh, the deputy um, Secretary of State. And then we had uh, Bill Taylor, who is the Acting Ambassador to Ukraine. Both of them are very caught up in this uh, kind of situation involving the President, his phone call to Ukraine. Both of them providing uh, corroborating information to what the whistleblower had originally brought forward. And one of them even bringing some new information to the table today. So it was kind of an action-packed political day in Washington. What was that new information brought to the table? So Ambassador Taylor actually brought forth some new information about a phone call that his staffer says that he overheard, uh, which was involving President Trump and the European Union Ambassador Gordon Sondland the day after President Trump's call with Zelensky from Ukraine. And in this phone call, uh, the president was talking about uh, the investigations into Biden. And when the staffer went to approach Ambassador Sondland, uh, he actually said, what does the president think about Ukraine right now? And he said, all he cares about is the Biden investigation. So it's just kind of further uh, uh, testimony and further proof that for the Democrats uh, that the president was simply trying to move his political, uh, personal political motives uh, above that of the country. Right. And so what the purpose of these hearings is to do what then, Reggie? 
So the purpose of these hearings is to kind of uh, advance the impeachment hearing process that Democrats started with these behind-closed-door uh, testimonies over the last couple of weeks. Ultimately, what they're going to do is hear from upwards of a dozen people. Some of them we've already heard from before. Some of them will be new to the list. All of the testimony will be made public. It'll be compiled into documents and handed to the Judiciary Committee, who will ultimately be uh, tasked with drafting articles of impeachment to vote on. So this is kind of just the next step in the phase, uh, just instead of being behind closed doors, it's now presented for the public to be able to shape their opinion. And what does the other side have to say? Because I know that the Republican lawyers also get a chance to ask some questions, but what is their take on this? Well, I mean, look, during the closed door hearings, which are a part of the process, which happen, you know, in each of the two uh, preceding impeachments that have ha- happened in the United States, uh, Republicans cried out saying that this was an improper way of doing things. It wasn't fair to members of Republican side of the Congress for not being able to uh, ask questions. Now that they're in an open hearing, Republicans are decrying this as a sham and something that shouldn't be happening in the first place. So they used their opportunities today, both between their own questions and counsel questions, to push conspiracy theories and draw back uh, debunked theories about Ukraine's involvement in the 2016 election. It was exactly what Democrats anticipated Republicans doing, so they were very laser-focused when Democrats came to asking their questions. Okay, but there's more people to hear from yet. There are more people to hear from. On Friday, we will hear from the recalled ambassador to the uh, to the Ukraine, uh, Marie Ivanovich. She had testified behind closed doors that she was fearful of President Trump. He had described her as bad news and said that she should watch her back uh, based on uh, you know information that he was given from Rudy Giuliani. We're actually going to hear on Friday from the person who overheard that phone call uh, with President Trump that was introduced today. And then next week, we'll hear from uh, more people who were behind closed doors, up to and including someone like Colonel Vindman, who gave... Apologies for that. Who gave some of the uh, more uh, uh, kind of damning information into President Trump when he was behind closed doors. Okay, so I get the sense then a lot of this is just uh, bringing together all the information that we've kind of heard in little trickles up until now. Absolutely. I mean, over the last month or so, there have basically been something like 2,500 or 3,000 pages of depositions that have been released, and people just don't have time to go through that kind of information. So this is an opportunity to put a face to the words, to allow the American public to kind of get a glimpse as to what's been going on behind closed doors. And ultimately, it gives uh, Democrats and Republicans an opportunity to explain their take on the story, because we're heading into an election period, and this is ultimately going to wind up in the Senate's hand in the very beginning stages of next year's election. Oh, boy. Okay. So what has the president had to say about this today? Well, earlier in the day, uh, the president's actually speaking right now. He, he just a couple of minutes ago called this you know, a sham and a witch hunt and a hoax and a joke. Uh, and he used those same words earlier today when he was sitting in the Oval Office. Much earlier in the day, he uh, called this on Twitter another witch hunt. He said the people who were uh, doing this testimony today uh, called them never Trumpers, despite the fact that they are career diplomats under Democratic and Republican presidents. And simply said, read the transcript. And this one drives me uh, a little bonkers every once in a while because the White House did not release a transcript. They released an edited summary of a phone call. So why don't they just release the transcript? Well, I mean, look, we, we had Colonel Vindman uh, during his closed door testimony uh, kind of fill in the blanks to what the ellipses were inside that uh, White House phone call. We know from the president speaking just a few minutes ago that he anticip- or that he uh, is going to release a, a second transcript from his first phone call with Ukraine's president. Says he's going to do that tomorrow, but he's been saying 
saying this for a couple of weeks now. Uh, we're not quite sure what's going to be in that phone call and how it might be related to this second phone call that but, they had. But this is how the president's trying to change the channel and sidestep things. Because, again, moving the goalpost further away is what happens when people start to advance on you. I guess I, what I don't understand about that is the original release of the edited transcript was from the White House anyway. So why wouldn't they have edited that one in the best possible light for them? And why would the real thing make that better? Well, but these are questions that we've been asking uh, members of the White House who simply just don't respond to things. They say, look, these, th- this was edited because this is, you know, this is how things are done, uh, despite the fact that the National Security Council said that they were alarmed at the fact that this was edited and put into this secure uh, 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 server system uh, inside the State Department. So uh, there are questions that are uh, still unanswered about the original uh, non-transcript transcript and what this potential new transcript for- could be. At the end of the day, all of the information that was in that White House summary was corrupt. Corroborated uh, from the whistleblower complaint and from the number of people who have come forward to testify. So this is only starting to uh, creep in on the president's shoulders Ooh. and will likely bother him and his administration for the next coming weeks. Ooh, sure sounds like it. All right, Reggie, thank you so much for that. I understand it much better now that we've talked I to you. I try to break it down <laughs> as easy as I can, and it still ends up sounding convoluted. No, no, no. You did a great <laughs> job. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks so much, Reggie Cicchini, our global news radio producer in Washington, D.C.